Peace be with you, and welcome to The Word Unveiled. Our program is The Search for Peter's Bones. As in all things, let us begin in prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Come, Holy Spirit, give us attentive ears with which to hear the Word of God, a contrite soul where the Word of God can take root, and a loving heart for sharing the Word of God with everyone we meet. In the name of the Father, and Son, Holy Spirit, amen. So let's begin with who was Peter? Well, we know that he was born Simon Barjona, and he was a fisherman. And we know that in his, at least in his adult life, he lived in the village or city of Capernaum, which is located on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. His brother Andrew had gone down to see John the Baptist and, in, and had also met Jesus and came and told him about Jesus. I think I found the Messiah, Andrew said. So, so Peter was attracted to Jesus, but he was also aware that he was very impulsive and he had a sinful nature. One time when Peter had been fishing all night, he came to the shore and he was drying out his net. The nets were made out of sheep's wool, so they had to be dried or they would rot. So he's drying the net and Jesus came by and said, have you caught anything? He said, no. Jesus said, cast out and put your net on the other side. And Peter thought, oh, no, I'm drying my net. You're not a fisherman. What do you know about fishing? But he loved Jesus, so he did it. He put the net out there. And of course, when he drew it up, it was filled with fish to the point of breaking. So after this happened, Simon fell down at Jesus' feet and he said, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. So Peter kind of knew his nature. Another incident from the Gospel of Matthew uh, occurred after Jesus had sent the disciples by boat across the Sea of Galilee, and he came on later. And this is what we read. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. And at once Jesus spoke to them, saying, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter said to him in reply, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and he began to walk on the water toward Jesus. But when he saw how strong the wind was, he became frightened and he began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Nevertheless, Simon becomes the leader of the band of disciples, and he's always mentioned first whenever the disciples are listed by name in any of the scriptures. And Jesus said to him, follow me, and I will make you a fisher of men. So Simon is included in the inner group of the three disciples that besides Peter, or Simon or Peter, includes James and John, who are brothers. Now, an incident occurred in the northwest, northeast part of um, the nation, beyond Galilee, uh, at a place called Caesarea Philippi, uh, which was on a rocky cliff, and on the top of it was a pagan temple dedicated to the Greek god Pan, and it was in ruins. And Jesus asked a question. He said, who do people say that I am? And the disciples came back with very lame answers. They didn't have a good answer. And then he changed the question. He says, who do you say that I am? 
And nobody said anything until Simon finally said, you are the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus renamed Simon and called him Peter or Petra in Greek, which means rock. And, and then he continued to say, on this rock, I will build my church. So Peter and the disciples are present in the upper room for the Last Supper, where Jesus took the Seder meal and transformed it into the Holy Mass. And Peter and John are the first to go to the tomb after being informed by Mary Magdalene that the stone had been rolled away. And Peter and the disciples are present in the upper room for the final appearance of the risen Lord, or first appearance of the risen Lord. And Peter sees and believes. And then Peter and the disciples are present on the Mount of Olives to witness the ascension of the Lord. And they are all commissioned to go and teach all nations. And so they do. Peter and John take up this mission seriously, and they begin speaking in the streets to, the, uh, to all the people of Jerusalem. And that is on when the Holy Spirit comes on the very first Pentecost. And the timid Peter is now filled with faith, and he shares it without regard to his personal safety. He and the other disciples now become an apostle for the faith, and they go to all the nations. Now, following a dream that the Lord sends to Peter, he, uh, he, he has a dream in which he, he sees messengers coming, and he sees a man who's not, who is a Gentile calling for him. And so he goes, and he follows them, and he goes to the house of Cornelius, who is a Roman centurion. And when he's there, he listens to what they have to say. He prays with them, and they are all filled with the Holy Spirit. So he baptizes all of the family, and, uh, and they're all confirmed, if you will, and, and they all enter into the church. And Peter instructs all those in Jerusalem and elsewhere to accept Gentiles into the faith. So when did Peter go to Rome? Well, Peter served as the bishop in Jerusalem. He was the first leader. And then he was in Antioch, maybe in the mid-40s. And then he was in Smyrna sometime in the 50s. And then some say around 54, 57, he went to Rome. But certainly he was in Rome uh, in the 60s. And First and Second Peter were epistles that were written by him uh, from Rome in which he described where he was at as Babylon, which is a code word for Rome. He didn't want people to know where he was if they intercepted these letters. Okay, now during the reign of the Emperor Nero, a fire uh, consumed a large part of the city. Now, there had been other persecutions before, sporadically, but Nero now blamed the Christians and the first empire-wide persecution began, and that was around the year of 64 AD. The Apostle Paul was imprisoned by Nero and later beheaded, and the Basilica of St. Paul outside the walls marks the location where that occurred. Peter was seized, imprisoned, and then crucified upside down as he cried out that he was not worthy to receive the same death as his Lord Jesus Christ. And some sources say this occurred on the same day as Paul's martyrdom, perhaps as early as 64 AD or as late as 67 AD. But certainly it was recorded, and it was recorded in early Christian art. It was carved into the stone of churches that were built for hundreds of years after that, and it was in um, mosaics and paintings that adorned the churches as well. 
So where did Peter's martyrdom actually occur? Well, Catholic tradition holds that Peter, Peter's inverted crucifixion occurred in Rome and with uh, and his and the burial, and he was buried in a tomb of simple grave on Vatican Hill. Gaius, who wrote around 198, writes that Peter and Paul were deposited, that is, they were buried in Rome, and he says, I can point out the trophies of the apostles, meaning the graves. He says, for if you are willing to go to the Vatican or the Ostian way, you will find the trophies of those who founded this church. Well, the Vatican is where St. Peter's Basilica will be built, and the Ostian way is where uh, St. Paul outside the walls is, has, is built. Tertullian, who wrote in the end of the second century, uh, described, um, he says, how happy is that church where Peter endured a passion like that of the Lord, where, where Paul was crowned in a death like John's. And he means here that Peter was killed like Jesus by crucifixion, and Paul was killed like John, John the Baptist, by beheading. And then he says, the budding faith Nero first made bloody in Rome. There Peter was girded by another since he was bound to the cross. So the church fathers were very uh, convinced that Peter was in Rome, and that's where he suffered martyrdom. Origen says Peter was crucified at Rome with his head downwards. Peter of Alexandria, who lived uh, in, the late, in the late 200s and was the bishop of Alexandria, says Peter, the first of the apostles, having been often apprehended and thrown into prison, was treated with ignominy and was last of all crucified at Rome. And St. Jerome writes that at Nero's hands, Peter received the crown of martyrdom, being nailed to the cross with his head towards the ground and his feet raised on high, asserting that he was unworthy to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord. So what did Rome look like in the time of Nero? Well, this map that you see on the screen uh, shows the red walls of the city as the dark red outline. And we see the two red crosses where Peter and Paul were martyred, and they were both outside of the city. Paul on the Via Ostensius, which is a major road into the city. And Peter was uh, crucified on a hill that was on the west side of the uh, uh, Tiber River called Vatican Hill. The only thing on Vatican Hill of any consequence was the Hippodrome or Circus of Nero. Now, the Hippodrome is a, it's a racetrack. It was oval in shape or rectangular in shape, and it was a place where horse races and chariot races were conducted. It was started by Emperor Caligula, and it was completed during the time of Emperor Claudius. But Nero made it his private playground, um, and, and so Nero spent a lot of his time there. There was also a very tall obelisk right in the very center of this hippodrome. And this obelisk had been seized by the Romans when they conquered Egypt, put on a ship, brought back to Rome, and carried to this location, and then placed erect in the very center of the uh, hippodrome. Here's a diagram that gives us an idea of the, the floor plate of the hippodrome. It's the blue outline space, and in the center of it, you can see where the where the uh, obelisk would be, and the tradition tells us that Peter was crucified upside down in that center island, perhaps while the race was going on, perhaps at the end of the day, we don't know for certain. But when his body was taken down, it was taken just outside of the Hippodrome and buried where you see the yellow square that says burial of Peter. The, the long, uh, the building shape that's outlined in yellow is old St. Peter's Basilica, 
which was completed in 337 AD. It was built with the altar over the site that was traditionally believed to be the burial place of Peter. And the other dark outline you see is the current St. Peter's that's traced over the top of this. So what was next, what was the area where Peter was buried? Well, Romans had a rule that you couldn't bury anybody within the city walls. They may have been concerned about disease from, from plague and, and uh, that type of thing, or they might have just been concerned about the use of land. So most of the burial areas were outside, and Vatican Hill became what they called a necropolis or a city of the dead. And there were simple graves in the ground, and there were also family mausoleums that were built on in this area. Peter's grave was often referred to as the poor man's grave. So the first question we have to ask is, how did the faithful obtain Peter's body? Well, the Romans crucified him, and one of two things might have happened. Perhaps they just decided to, when the crucifixion was over, they just hacked his ankles and let the body fall to the ground. Or maybe the faithful went in and did the same thing and stole the body while people were engaged in other things. Generally, they would have burned, the Romans would have burned the body. But the faithful, through testimony, say they took the body, they took it outside of the Hippodrome, and they buried it in a simple grave. This diagram indicates what that might have looked like. There was no coffin or casket, uh, just wrapped in, in, in a blanket and buried in the ground. And there was no identifying mark. And they didn't want anybody to know where this was. The faithful knew where the grave was, and that's how it lasted for a while. But after a number of years, 15 to 20 years or so, uh, many of the faithful started to die and pass on. And so uh, others went and directed two stones in a tent-like fashion over the top of the grave to mark it. And also some of the faithful wanted to be buried near Peter, so other graves started to be uh, dug in the area, simple graves. But then the mausoleum started to be built in this area, and sometime around 145, somebody built a mausoleum with a red wall, and it went right over the top of where Peter's grave was. Now, someone later put a niche in the wall. It's believed that the faithful who knew where Peter's grave was went back after this work was completed, and in the night they carved out a niche in the wall so that the grave would be located by that niche in the wall. And then around 300 AD, when just about the time that Constantine becomes emperor and the Edict of Milan is issued in 312, which says you no longer can persecute Christians, um, about that time, they began to mark the grave uh, more conspicuously. And Gaius, who had spoken of the trophies, um, talked about this construction, which was a little low roof that was built over the part of the grave that protruded out from the red wall. And then a, a higher roof was built into the niche. So this was called the Trophy of Gaius. And um, and it was, and, and the grave was marked by the, that construction, and it stayed that way until the year 318, when the original St. Peter's Basilica was built at the site. And they chose the site because they knew that was Peter's grave. So this is what they built over the top of, of uh, St. Peter's grave. It started in 318. It took 40 years to complete. It's a wooden structure. Remarkably, not, not like so many of the structures in the Middle Ages, 
<clears throat> that were all built out of stone, but this was built out of, out, of, out of wood, built out of lumber, and it lasted for 1,200 years. Now, that's, this is amazing, but true. Uh, Rome was sacked by the Visigoths in the year 410, only 50 years or 60 years after the basilica was completed, but the basilica was not burned. And then it was sacked again in 440, 826, and 1526. And intermittently in between those years, there were smaller raids and fires and devastation. But the Basilica of St. Peter's on Vatican Hill endured and was not destroyed by fire, as was most of the city on numerous occasions. So this is a plan of uh, old St. Peter's Basilica, which lasted from 318 to the year 1505. And you can see the altar is where uh, Peter's uh, grave was located. Um, but now it had been covered by this construction. So nobody was actually quite sure where it was. They just knew it was under the building. When the new St. Peter's was built in the same location, they used the same mark, the same location as the altar to center the construction of the new cathedral. And, uh, and it was also built over St. Uh, Peter's tomb. Now, with the rise of Protestantism, the Reformation or Revolution, uh, 1517 onwards, many attacked the church in various ways. And this was at, one that, at the time when Martin Luther began to cast doubts on whether Peter had ever been in Rome at all. And he claimed that nothing in the Bible said he was there. Okay, but these critiques, of course, ignored all the testimony of all the church fathers. It ignored Roman records. It ignored... Um, uh, it, all of this past history and tradition, mostly because it wanted to attack apostolic succession, the priesthood, papal authority, and the magisterium. But it started to create doubts. But when St. Peter's Basilica was completed in, in around 1536 or thereabouts, it looked like, as it does now. And this is what we see today. And you notice that obelisk in St. Peter's Square? That's the same obelisk that was in the Hippodrome, which would have been just out of sight to the left of the picture. They took it down, transported it over, and re-erected it in St. Peter's Square. But now it's surmounted with a cross. Okay, skip way forward in history to the year 1939. Pope Pius XI has expressed the desire to be buried under the, the altar at St. Peter's Basilica. And he dies in 1939, and that unintentionally begins a 75-year search for the bones of St. Peter. So he wanted to be located directly under the altar, but when they looked in that space, there, there, it, there was a space under it, but it was very shallow. Uh, and they, and it wasn't tall enough to, to put a, a tomb and a chapel that he wanted to put there. So they decided they'd dig the earth a little deeper under this space. So there was foundations around uh, the area for the cathedral, and, and they propped up uh, some of the earth and the floors with, with new beams, and they began to dig and dig and make it deeper, and suddenly the, the ground below broke open, and one of the workmen fell 30 feet down into a space below. And the space below he fell into was one of the Roman mausoleums that was had, had been covered over with the construction of the mausoleum. Because the hillside was not flat, you couldn't build a basilica on that. So they had filled in all the mausoleums and regraded the slope and filled it with sand. 
and some of the mausoleums there were, were thereby preserved by being filled with sand. When they looked at what they found, there was bright colors, uh, there was plastered work, there was carving, and they were just amazed. And they found one after another. What you see on the screen now is a cross-section through the cathedral. You see the baldacchino, which is this, the roofed area that's over the top of the altar. And you see the red line, which is the floor of the church, the main sanctuary in St. Peter's. And then the blue below it is tombs of the popes. Well, that part they knew about and they had always been doing. But the green area below, they didn't even know it was there. And so when they tried to dig under the altar to make it deeper, that's where they fell into the, the mausoleums. So Pope Pius XII, realizing that there was something to be explored down there and realizing that they had lost the tomb of Peter, they didn't know where it was, uh, he decided that they would search for it. This is very uncharacteristic of him. He was a very um, conservative, careful, methodical person, but this, he decided, had to be done. Uh, so, but he, but he wanted to make sure that it didn't become a spectacle or um, become a bad news story. So all the work had to be done at night. They couldn't use power tools. It had to be done very um, secretively. So he assembled a team, and, and, uh, and the team was quite unusual that he composed. Uh, his team included a Texas oil man, an American priest and diplomat, a German fighting Hitler, an Italian archaeologist, and a remarkable woman who could find clues that others often overlooked. So the American or Texas oil man was George Strake. And George Strake was an extremely wealthy man. He had been wonderfully successful in searching for oil. He would go to places where people said there's no oil there, and he'd find it. And so he had done this time and time again. But he was also a very devout Catholic, and he was very generous and his uh, contributions to the church. And the Holy Father knew this, so he asked an American priest, Father Walter Carroll, to go and meet with him and ask him if he would finance the operation to find Peter's tomb. And he said he would. So Father Carroll became the go-between to get to the funds to bring them back to, to Rome. The person that was in charge of the project, one step down from the Pope, was Monsignor Giovanni Montini. If he looks familiar, that's because he'll later become Pope Paul VI. Another person on the team was Monsignor Ludwig Kass. Now, Kass was living in Germany, and he was extremely critical of the Nazis and their treatment of the Jews and everything else that was going on in Germany. And in 1938, he was very much in danger of being uh, executed by the Nazis, and the Pope sent a special team in there to get him and get him out of Germany and back to Rome. So he was he was in Rome and uh, Pope Pius XII put him on the, the special team and made him uh, coordinate the work of the others and make sure it was done being done with care and, and the proper um, respect for, for what, would, the, what they would find. The youngest member of the team was Father Antonin Ferreira and Ferreira um, had just gotten a degree in archeology span and he was a bit impulsive, and he was maybe a bit proud, um, and he took to his task with uh, the idea that he had all authority and didn't really have to clear anything with anybody. 
And so the work began. It had, as I mentioned, it had to be done at night to avoid discovery. Hand tools were used in lieu of power tools, so there's no vibration, no noise. And the, but the team went at it with much enthusiasm. And Father Ferrero was bound to determine he's going to find the tomb of Peter. So he started hacking through everything. So if there was thing, items that would be of archaeological value to others, he just kind of blasted through them. Meanwhile, Father Walter Carroll was crossing the Atlantic repeatedly to carry funds from George Strake to the, the Pope in the middle of the Second World War. But besides doing that, and unbeknownst to many, Father Carroll also carried information about Italian and German military installations in and around Rome and let the Allies know where the strong points were. As he did that, he pleaded with the Allies to not bomb or make Rome a smoking battleground. And he was successful, as was Pope Paul, excuse me, Pope Pius XII, who spoke privately to several German Catholic generals, and he gained their assurance of a peaceful withdrawal. And we know from history that when the Allies approached Rome, Hitler told his generals, burn the city, destroy it, leave nothing standing. And they just took their troops and went quietly and did not do that. They ignored Hitler's commands. Here's another cross-section of that same area. We see um, the Baldacchino and the altar. And we can see in cross-section, we can see that all the mausoleums formed like a street. And below the, the cross-section, there's a plan view of that same thing. And you see the individual rooms of all these mausoleums. And between them, there was a street. And that street went right down to the Tiber River. And, and because of the way the hillside was, this area was filled with sand and leveled off so that they could build the cathedral. This is probably what it looked like about the year 145 AD, um, just before the, um, oh, 150 years before the old St. Peter's was first built. So Father Ferrua, who was breaking through the walls, he was smashing into everything, but he's going to find the bones. And um, Father Koss, who was supposed to oversee his work, um, was kind of kept out of the, the loop. So he began to go to the site at night after they're done working, and he would find little piles of bones that they had uncovered by opening the walls and, and these mausoleums. And so he gathered up all these bones and meticulously noted where he found them, which mausoleum, what wall, what niche, and, and put them in storage. So all the bones uh, were, were kept in numbered sequence. What Father Ferrua didn't apparently recognize when he went through the area was that some of the mausoleums, like the one at the left, has pagan and Roman uh, inscriptions and, and graphics on the floors and the walls. And some of them, like the one on the right, has obviously Christian iconography with halos behind the heads of the saints. And this was true throughout all the area. And, and these mausoleums were large, and they would have had wooden seats in them at one time because when somebody would be buried there, it was a family tomb after all, and the next family member came, they would have a party there. And they actually had holes in the floor, so when some of the graves were in the floors, they would pour wine down these holes so that the dead could join in the celebration. That was the Roman idea of a burial rite. On the screen now is an isometric drawing, a 3D drawing of the area around Peter's tomb. The blue area is some of the mausoleums, the green area as well. 
And the red area is that red wall that I mentioned earlier. The, the trophy of Gaius is the two-tiered roof structure that covered the niche in the wall and also the tomb, the earliest tomb of Peter under the ground here. And there's a model next to it so you get an idea of what they discovered. And Father Ferrua and his team found this. And uh, they immediately began to dig beneath it and they found bones and they were very excited. And so they announced that they had found Peter's tomb and they'd found the bones in 1950. But Pope Pius XII stated that bones had been uncovered, but they must undergo further testing. So he was a little bit more cautious than uh, Father Ferrua. Later that year, Father Kast died and a new team leader was sought. And they found a remarkable woman, Margarita Garducci. She was a prominent archaeologist and she was an epigraphist. And that means somebody who can read ancient languages and carved inscriptions in rock. And some of the inscriptions are so faint and so um, hard to see, but she found these inscriptions and she could read the walls where nobody else could. She was hired to replace Father Koss and she headed up the team, which is called the Apostle Project in 1952. This rankled Father Ferrua. He didn't want a boss. He wanted to do things his way. And uh, he was able to get around Father Koss, but he could not do the same thing with Margarita Garducci. She began deciphering the writing on the tombs. And she started at the far end and worked her way through the necropolis until she finally came to the Red Wall. What she found as she went through the different mausoleums were inscriptions like these. She saw one graphic which shows a godlike creature with horses. Well, that's obviously Apollo driving his chariot across the sky, the sun god. But when you look closer, it's not. It's a, it's a picture of Christ and there's a cross behind him. The horses are just there to disguise and to throw off people. And then another one she found was this of a fisherman. And he has one fish on the line and the other fish is swimming away. Some are called and some do not respond to the call. And then she found some plaques that nobody tried to decipher them. They just thought that they were Roman writing. But what she found was that the Cairo symbol was in the middle of the writing. She took it off the wall, looked on the other side. There was Roman writing and Roman messages on the one side. But what had happened is as Christianity became more of the religion of the empire, Christians took over these mausoleums, recarved the stones, and, and buried their, their families there. So she started to see that there were many more signs pointing toward Peter. In other uh, mausoleums, she found the Cairo once again. Then she found the Cairo with what looked like an E on the bottom. And the P-E could mean Peter, because she found that sketched out many different times, or it could be a key, meaning the key of the kingdom, the rock of the church, the first pope, Peter. And finally, she worked her way up to the Red Wall. When she came to the Red Wall, this diagram shows uh, Peter's original grave in the ground in the yellow area, the Red Wall, the Trophy of Gaius, the little roofs that are built into the niche. And then there was a new wall called the Graffiti Wall, a green wall that had built sometime after that to prop up the red wall because there was a big crack in the red wall. 
And this green wall had a little bit of a niche in it. And when she saw that niche and she looked all around and she saw a lot of writing and on the wall, here's the actual photograph of the wall with the niche and there's writing on the wall and she found a rock that was on the ground that somebody had knocked down, whether it was the team or from before, but she could read what it said. And it said, Peter is within. So she looked into the niche, but there were no bones. And then one day she just happened to be having a cup of coffee with an assistant of the late Father Koss. And she remarked that she was surprised that no bones were found in the niche in the graffiti wall. And he said, oh yeah, we found bones. We put them in the in a little reliquary and we put them in the storage. And she said, let me see those bones. So he took her to the reliquary and she found the bones. Now, she found something else as she was doing this work. At the beginning of the work, she was a self-professed agnostic. But by the time she finished this work, she had refound her faith. She had a rebirth of faith and she was back in the good graces of the church. And so she examined the bones. She had them sent out for all kinds of laboratory tests. And these are, here's a diagram and, and, the, and a report on what the bones were that were found in this red wall. They were forensically tested, and they are found to be much more than 1,000 years old, maybe 2,000 years old. The bones were from a robust man, 60 to 70 years of age, and all of the bones in the catch belonged to the same man. And the bones uh, or fragments of bones were from every part of the body except the feet. There were no bones from the ankles downward. Remember, how did, the, how did the faithful get the body of Peter off the cross so fast and get it off to the grave? Perhaps that was why. So she wrote a book about what she uh, found. And that was... Everybody was thankful that she had put all this information together, except one man, Father Ferua. He was still a little bit jealous. So, and, uh, so the bones found out of the trophy of Gaius were for, the ones that Father Ferua found. These other bones, they were forensically determined to be from two women and one man, plus several animals. The man was determined to be about 30 years old, and Father Ferua was not happy about that. So how could that be? Why, why would there be bones of two women and a man and some animals in the place that was supposed to be the grave of Peter? Could it be that the faithful moved the bones to preserve them and just threw some bones in that grave in case the Romans were going to destroy it? We don't know. But not long after that, Pope Pius XII died and the bones were stored and there's been no further comment about those bones uh, since that time. Pope John uh, the Twenty-Third, who succeeded him, did not apparently take interest in the Apostle Project. But then again, his his time uh, as Pope was only five years, and he was the one who started Vatican II. So he had plenty on his plate. When he died, Monsignor Montini, who had been the executive of the project, became Pope Paul the Sixth, and he already knew about the project. He was uh, the strategic leader of the team, and he supported Garducci to the chagrin of the others, and he ordered more testing on the bones found in the niche in the red wall. And they just found out more information that supported a conclusion that they were from a man in his 60s or 70 years old, um, and they'd been there for well over a 1,000 years. And then in 1966, 
Pope Paul VI announced that St. Peter's bones have been found. So he announced that the bones were truly those of Peter. And then he, uh, his, he died in 1978. And with the death of Pope Paul VI, Garducci lost her strongest supporter. And Father Ferrua once again tried to cast doubt on Garducci's discovery. And he wrote a book. And it didn't say he found the bones of Peter, but it said the unknown catacomb. And he talked all about all the other things that they found in the necropolis. And here's a photo of him showing his book to Pope John Paul II. And uh, Pope John Paul II didn't seem to take uh, too much interest in the project. And then again, he had quite an agenda. So there was nothing further done uh, until Pope Benedict XVI became Pope. And he visited the necropolis and the tombs of the popes frequently under under the uh, main floor of the sanctuary. And he was quite interested in that project, and he shared that interest with Pope Francis, his successor. And in 2013, uh, Pope Francis, after additional and extensive forensic testing, declared that the bones discovered by Margarita Garducci are indeed the bones of St. Peter. Here's a photo of St. Peter's Basilica looking down the main aisle toward the baldacchino and the altar. And then as you approach, there's a space beneath the altar and the reliquary of the bones of St. Peter are permanently housed in that area. That's the search for Peter's bones. Let's close the prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Thanks for watching. Peace be with you.